You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. My youngest daughter asked me this morning, Daddy, where are you preaching from today? The book of John. And I said, that's going to be the answer from now until you hear different or until you graduate. <laughs> John chapter 1. Let's bow together before we begin and then we will read our text together. Our Father, it is with a recognition of our own dependence upon you and your spirit that we come to you this morning. We ask that in our reading, in our study, and as we give attention to some very difficult things that require our thoughtful reflection, that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher here this morning, that your word would be heard in the text and your voice would be heard in this text, that you would guide us in this and empower us for this end and empower me to clearly communicate what is here before us. I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, we will read together verses 19 through 23. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So what have we learned so far about John the Baptist? Two things from last week, you remember? Number one, he didn't start his own denomination. And number two, he wasn't Southern. And that is still there are still some among us who are recovering from that realization, that little piece of information. And uh, we ran out of time last week together. Actually, we didn't run out of time together. I ran out of time. You were sitting here watching me run out of time as we are making our way through verses 19 through 23, looking at the identity of John the Baptist. In this very first witness that the author calls to the witness stand to testify concerning who Jesus is, the very first thing that he is going to do is try to give to us the identity of this witness. He is pulling out the credentials. Because if he's going to call somebody on the stand, as it were, to testify concerning the nature of Christ, that He is the light and that He is the life, and that by believing in Him, we can have life in His name. If John is going to do that, then this he has to establish at the beginning who this witness is. He has to establish his credibility, his integrity, and his authority to testify concerning Christ. And so, the very first person, of course, that he pulls out is John the Baptist. And he is a prophet. And so, we're looking at him and we're looking at the identity of John the Baptist in verses 19 to 23. And last week, we started off to look at the three points. You remember them? The questioners, the questions, and then the quotation in verses 19 to 23. We just got through the questioners, the priests and the Levites, who were sent out by the Pharisees to inquire of John, who are you? They want to find out, why is this man so popular? Why is he saying the things that he is saying? Is he more than just John, son of Zacharias and son of uh, Elizabeth? Is he something more than that? Is he a Christ? Is he What type of a prophet is he? And so the priests and the Levites go out to where John is baptizing, and there they start to ask him these questions. And we looked at some of the reasons why they would be interested in, the Pharisees, in who John is. 
First, likely because John posed a threat to their own physical security. If he was a false Christ, if he was about to try and lead an insurrection or a rebellion of some sort, as many had done up to that time, they feared that Rome would come in and violently suppress the rebellion. And the Pharisees didn't want that. So they're concerned that John might be leading a movement like this. Second, John posed a threat to their own security, their own power security, as it were, because John was saying some scathing things about the religious leaders of the nation, calling them brood of vipers, children of snakes, and having the audacity to suggest that those religious leaders of the nation needed to repent. They wanted to find out, who is this man? Why is he saying this? And third, he posed the threat of a threat to orthodoxy. They had a responsibility as the religious leaders of the nation to investigate and to expose false teachings and false teachers. And so they have that vested interest as well. So they send the Levites and the priests out to ask John four questions. And now we turn our attention to the four questions that they ask him. The very first one is actually at the end of verse 20, or at the end of verse 19, I should say. They came from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, there's more behind that question than just simply wanting to know his name. It's not like they showed up and said, hi, I'm, I'm Levi or I'm Joseph. Who, who are you? They, they want to know more than who he is, his name. They know that he's the son of John or Zacharias and the son of Elizabeth. They know that his father was a priest. They know that he kind of grew up in a priestly family and his father was involved in priestly ministry. They know who he is. But they're after something else. They're after something deeper, more profound, more significant. They know that there's more to John than meets the eye. And that's what they're asking him. Who are you? They want to know, are you the Christ? You see, John is able to discern the drift of their questioning, which is why he answers the way he does. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John knows what they're really asking. It's more than just what's your name. It's who are you? You're more than just John. You're more than just son of Zacharias. You're somebody more significant, more profound, more important, more influential than just that. So, tell us, take off the mask as it were. Tell us who are you really? That's what they want to know. And John can tell that their real question is, are you the Christ? That's why it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Now, the author puts all three piles, three phrases, one on top of the other. He confessed. He did not deny. He confessed. And that's John's way of indicating John's uh, emphasis upon this. John is being clear. That is John the Baptist. He is being clear in his denial of being the Christ. He is not leaving anything to their imagination. He is staying in the strongest possible terms in the clearest possible way, with the most emphasis as was possible, I am not the Christ. He did not want them to misunderstand that. He wanted them to walk away from there knowing one thing, I am not the light, I am not the life, I am not the anointed one, I am not the Christ, I am not the Son of God. So he says, I am not the Christ. Now Christ, to you and I, has become sort of a... uh, it's more. It's, it's become basically a, a last name for us, the way we refer to Jesus Christ. We refer to Jesus Christ, and we use that as if the Lord Jesus Christ, and we almost use Christ as almost the last name. But that's not how it was used back in Jesus' day. Christ was not His last name. Christ is the title of His office. He was Jesus, son of Joseph, or son of Mary. 
But he wasn't Jesus and his last name wasn't Christ. He is Jesus, the Christ. And by the Christ, what we mean is more than just a last name or a name. It is the title of the office that he holds. In the Old Testament, they were familiar with those who were the anointed. David was anointed. Prophets were anointed. People who who um, were special messengers from God were anointed ones. And in due course, over the course of time, the anointed came to refer to somebody who had an anointing in a special sense. And they began to expect somebody who was going to come on the scene who would be an extraordinary individual. Somebody was going to step onto the scene who would be anointed in a way that no other man or woman had ever been anointed by God to do anything. And so they started to refer to the anointed one, not just an anointed one, but the anointed one. And that's what Christ means. The word Christ just means an anointed one. But the Jews had an expectation that this one coming one was going to be more than just an anointed individual. He was going to be the anointed individual. So the priests and the Levites asked him, at least that's the drift of their questioning, who are you? I am not the anointed one. I am not the Christ. I am not the one that we have all been looking forward to and expecting to come onto the scene. I am not him. So he denies it in the strongest possible terms. And this for them would have cleared up something, but it would have added a bit of confusion. It would have cleared up this. We know he's not the Christ. But that doesn't answer the question, who or what is he? And what is his office? And they can't go back to the Jews who sent them in Jerusalem and say, well, we found out he's not the Christ. We have no idea who he is or what he's doing, but we know this one thing, he's not the Christ. So that leads to their second question. And they ask, what would be the next most logical question to the Jewish mind? What then? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? That's the second question that they ask. Are you Elijah? Now, that makes sense maybe to a Jewish mind, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to your mind, does it? Are you Elijah? Didn't they know that Elijah had already come? Isn't Elijah dead? Elijah's dead, right? No. Elijah never died. You remember Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire into heaven? Elijah never suffered death. And their question really is prompted by an Old Testament prophecy in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where Malachi prophesies and said this. This is the voice of the Lord saying, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. So the Jews had an Old Testament prophecy that predicted that Elijah would come before the coming day of the Lord. That is the day of judgment, the day of darkness, the day of judgment upon the nations. And they expected that Elijah would appear before the Messiah would appear. And you see the, the hints of this expectation in the Gospels. In Matthew, uh, no, sorry, Mark chapter 8, when Jesus is with His disciples, He asks them, who do men say that I am? And they say, because John the Baptist has already been killed by the point of Mark chapter 8, they say, well, some people say that you are John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Other people say that you are Elijah, referencing Malachi chapter 4, the one who would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Some people think that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets risen from the dead. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Well, we believe that you're the Christ. But there was an understanding among the people in the crowds that this could be John the Baptist risen from the dead or that Jesus could be the Elijah who was to come. In Mark chapter 9, later on, when Peter, James, and John go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, with Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured before them, Peter, James, and John see two people standing and talking with Christ. And who are they? 
Moses and Elijah. And then when they're coming down, Jesus says to them, Do not tell anyone what you have seen until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. Now, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are thinking to themselves, okay, we believe Him to be the Messiah. We confessed that back in chapter 8, previously when He asked us. And now He's saying, don't tell anybody what you've seen until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. And they, of course, will be thinking back to the Old Testament hope of the resurrection. They believe that who they have in front of them is the Messiah, but they just saw Moses and Elijah. And so that makes them ask a question. And the question they ask is, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, we don't understand this. Here's the, the Lord, the Messiah here, but the scribes and all of the teachers have said that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. Yet here's the Messiah, and we just saw him speaking to Elijah, who's obviously in heaven. We don't understand this. Well, the scribes had taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah, and this caused some confusion among the disciples, and that's why they asked Jesus about that. Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Do you know that today even the Jews, when they celebrate um, an Orthodox Passover Seder, that they have a cup of Elijah that they have at the table, and they also have in many homes a tradition where they go and they open up the door to invite and allow Elijah in. Because they still expect Elijah the prophet to come and precede the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So that was a common belief in the Old Testament and in the Jews among Jesus' day, that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come. They have, and then I want you to imagine with that expectation, that Old Testament prophecy in mind, on the scene steps John the Baptist, who's clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and says of Elijah that that's how he dressed. And John the Baptist is, has the office of a prophet, just like Elijah had, and they haven't seen a prophet in 400 years. And on top of that, John the Baptist is doing the very same thing that Elijah used to do, which was call upon the leaders of the nation to repent and turn to God. So in his office and in his looks and in his demeanor and in his message and in his function and in his appearance to the people, he reminds them of Elijah in every way. And so the Jews and the, or the priests and the Levites, when they find out that he's not the Messiah, then in their minds they're thinking, the next logical question would be, are you the one then who is to precede the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And what does John say? I am not. Now listen. At this point, this is where the sledding gets a little thick. At this point, we can't just leave John's answer here in John chapter 1 without taking into account what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, listen, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. And then back to Mark chapter 9 when the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first as they're walking down from the Mount of Transfiguration? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Here was Jesus' answer to that question, Mark chapter 9. Elijah does come first and he will restore all things. And yet, how is it that it is written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I say to you, Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Who's he speaking of? John the Baptist. Now, Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah that was to come, and John the Baptist, when he was asked, are you Elijah? He said, what? I'm not. Here's our question. Actually, there's two of them. First of all, was John the Baptist Elijah who was to come? And second, 
What then are we to make between the differences between what John says about himself and what Jesus says about John? John denied it and Jesus affirmed it. Who are we to believe? Can we believe both of them? How do we understand those, that distinction? Let's deal with the first question. Was John the Baptist Elijah that was to come? The answer to that question is yes and no. Don't you love it when I do that? Somebody was just teasing me this last week, asked me a question. I forget even who it was, but I have a suspicion it was somebody here. And they said, uh, they asked me a question and said, I have a suspicion you're going to say yes and no to that question. It's true. There's a lot of things in Scripture that it's yes and no. Yes, he was in one sense, but no, he wasn't in another sense. Here's the sense in which John was Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel uh, appeared to Zacharias and told him about his son, he said he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the... Um, turn people's hearts. I had it up here for a second ago. He will turn their hearts, but he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So, was John Elijah? Yes, in the sense that he was a prophet and he was a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the terrible day of the Lord. John was a fulfillment of that prophecy and had the Jews accepted it, had they listened, had they heard that and accepted it as truth, John would have been the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Malachi 4, verse 5. But he, he wasn't and he didn't because they rejected him. So he was in that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah and had a very Elijah-like function. And Jesus said he is Elijah that was to come. He already came. But then after John's death in Mark chapter 9, Jesus also said, Elijah must still come. And he refers to it in the future. So Elijah did come and he must still come. In other words, there is still a coming of the one who is promised in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. John was a fulfillment of that prophecy, but he was not the ultimate fulfillment, nor was he the final fulfillment of that prophecy, because before the Lord returns to earth, he will be preceded by one who will fulfill Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, who will come, and he will be the Elijah who is to come. Does everybody understand that? So, was John the Baptist Elijah? In the spirit and the power of Elijah, he was a fulfillment of that prophecy. And Jesus is right when he said Mount John is a fulfillment of that. But, Jesus said, there is still an Elijah who is to come who will restore all things. And that will be before the Lord returns. Now, some people would equate that with Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. Some people would say that those two witnesses are going to be John the Baptist and Elijah risen, risen from the dead. Or some people would say that Elijah is going to still come before the, the terrible day of the Lord, before his second coming, that the Elijah who was taken up in the chariot will return to earth. I'll leave that to your study. The question that we're presented to today is, was John the Baptist the Elijah that was to come? And the answer is yes and no. Yes in one sense, but no in another sense. So what then are we to make of Jesus' statement that John was the Elijah that was to come and John's statement that he is not Elijah? I would suggest to you this. When the Jews came and asked John the question, what, do the, what did they mean? They meant, are you the Elijah? That is the one of Second Kings who was taken up in the chariot. Are you that Elijah? That's what they're asking him. That is what they expected. Elijah to come back from heaven, having never died, to return before the coming of the Messiah. So when they ask him, are you the Elijah? That's what they mean. And what is John to answer to that? No, I'm not. That's what they meant by that. The literal real Elijah. And John is saying, I'm not him. So he's not lying. But some would say what he's denying that he is the Elijah of Malachi 4, verse 5 in any way, and that there's no connection whatsoever to him and Elijah. 
And to that I would suggest, I think there might be something else going on here, and it might be this. John probably did not know that he was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. That, or John, in true genuine humility, refused to take that title of himself because he did not view himself that way, even though Jesus viewed John that way. You see, no man is really what he is in his own eyes, is he? A man is only what he is in God's eyes and nobody else. A man is not what he is in his own eyes. So what is John's own assessment of himself? That's not me. I don't deserve that title. That's not my role. That's not my function. I am just a voice. That is a very humble statement. But Jesus gives a very true assessment of John the Baptist, and that is what? He is the Elijah which is to come. But John didn't see himself that way. Is that clear as mud? Tough sledding, isn't it? That's You know, the last time that I dealt with this was when I preached through the book of Malachi. And there are three people here probably who were here when I preached through the book of Malachi. So, moving on. That's the second question. What then? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not that. Well, if he's not the Christ, and he's not the one to precede the Christ, at least as they were interpreting the one that was to precede the Christ, then they're running out of options, but they're not entirely out of options. There is one more Old Testament figure that people had a mixed opinion about and a mixed interpretation of. Maybe maybe he's this guy. So they ask him, are you then the prophet? This is the third question. Are you the prophet? If you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, then maybe you are the prophet. Now, who is the prophet? It's an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And I'll read the passage to you. This is Moses toward the end of his life as he is about to leave. They are reciting the law back together in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is giving them the law all over again a second time. And Moses writes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. That is like Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the Jews had a prophet that they were looking forward to that Moses had predicted the Lord will eventually raise up a prophet like me from among you. And him you will listen to. So the Jews had expectations of who this prophet would be and they didn't know. And if you had taken a poll, if you had stepped onto the scene and taken a poll in Jesus' day, who is the prophet of the book of Deuteronomy that Moses spoke of, you would have got a number of different opinions. Some people would have said, well, the prophet that Moses spoke of and Elijah, they are the same person. And so the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18 is the Elijah who came, and he is the Elijah of Amalekai chapter 4 who will come before the terrible day of the Lord. A second response you would have got, people would have said, the prophet who is to come is not Elijah, but a different prophet, probably one of the Old Testament prophets resurrected. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? One of the responses that the crowd was giving to that question was, we think he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The Jews had an expectation that all sorts of prophets would come on the scene before the coming of the terrible day of the Lord. Not only Elijah, but maybe Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and who knows who else. They were expecting that maybe the prophet was just one of the prophets resurrected. But there was a third option. Some Jews equated the prophet with the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 33, and Acts chapter 7, I think it's verse 37, Jesus is said to be the fulfillment of that prophecy that the prophet and the Messiah are the same person. 
But the priests and the Levites don't necessarily think that that could be the case. Or they're at least open to the possibility that the prophet is somebody different than the Messiah because they've already asked him, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah that is to come? No. Well, in their minds, they're thinking, then maybe he's the prophet and the prophet is not Elijah or the Messiah, but he's somebody different. So are you the prophet? And what does John say to that? No. I want you to notice something about John's answers. Do you notice how they're getting progressively shorter? Answer number one, I am not the Christ. Answer number two, I am not. Answer number three, no. It almost indicates that John was getting somewhat fed up with this line of questioning. I don't think John really wanted to talk about himself. John wanted to talk about Jesus. That's what he came to do, to bear witness to the light. He's not the light. He's not the light. He's there to testify to the light and the life. And now he's got a group of people that are quizzing him and wanting him to talk about himself. And he starts off by saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not. No. He's getting short and sort of curt with them. Doesn't want them asking him about himself. Doesn't want him asking about John. He wants to talk about Jesus. By the way, keep in mind that it is impossible to draw attention to yourself and to Jesus at the same time. You realize that? Something to remember. It's impossible to draw attention to yourself and to focus attention on Christ at the same time. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, now they're out of options and they're somewhat exasperated by the response that they're getting. He's not offering any any question, any answers that go beyond the questions that they're asking. Don't, don't you hate it when you're in a conversation with somebody and you sort of throw the ball out and they give you a one-word answer and you're trying to get the conversation going? You've been around people like that? Had them over for dinner? Miserable time. And then they, they don't give you anything, so you throw it out again and it's yes or no. And you throw out another one, it's yes or no. And you just cannot get the ball going. They can't throw anything back to you. What do you do in such a situation? You ask them an open-ended question that requires something more than a yes or no response. That's exactly what the priests and Levites do. Well then, what do you have to say about yourself? Tell us something so that when we go back to Jerusalem, we have something to tell the Pharisees who sent us out here. What do you have to say about yourself? Piercing question, is it not? What is your assessment of yourself? Now think of the ways that John could have answered that question. He says, and he quotes Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm just a voice. I'm just somebody who is here to proclaim a message, to herald the arrival of the King. That is my job. My job is simply to pronounce, to announce, to proclaim, to speak forth the truth. I'm just a voice. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Uh, that quotation is used of John. That quotation is applied to John in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them apply that passage, that prophecy, to John the Baptist, indicating John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now let me give you just a brief sort of context of Isaiah 40, verse 3, so that you can understand why John quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 40 begins the new section of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. The book of Isaiah can be divided up into the first 39 chapters and the last 27 chapters. Kind of like your Bible, 39 books, 27 books. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the, the message is one of condemnation and judgment as Isaiah brings to the trial every nation nearly in and around Jerusalem. Babylon, Edom, Egypt, Philistia, uh, Judea, Samaria, the whole gamut. And all of those nations brings them before the court of God and says, you're guilty and here are your sins. 
This is the condemnation that you can expect. You should prepare yourself for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is going to come upon all nations and the day of the Lord is near. And judgment is coming upon every nation who rejects God, the true God of heaven. That's the first 39 chapters. Chapter 40, by the time you get to the end of chapter 39, you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't even want to be alive when that day happens because I'm scared. Chapter 40 begins, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. What is the message of comfort? The message of comfort is the last 27 books, or chapters of the book of Isaiah, where the message is about this one who is the servant of God who would come. The servant is not Cyrus the king. The servant is not any ordinary individual. The servant is the branch of David, the servant of the Lord, who would show up on the scene and he would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be bruised for our transgression. He would take the stroke, the beating that was due to you and I, and God would through him deliver his people and all those who would trust in him. So the beginning of the message of hope begins with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which reads, A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says there is a voice. He is one crying out in a wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And this has to happen before the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now in John chapter 1, who do we see is full of glory, full of grace? We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So when this one, who is the essence of divine glory, shows up on the scene, he is preceded by somebody who says, make straight the way of the Lord. And that is... John the Baptist. So before the glory of the Lord is to be revealed, before the day of the Lord would come, a voice would come onto the scene saying, prepare to meet your God. Prepare for the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord and prepare to meet your Lord. And John the Baptist was that voice. That's all he says. It's a very humble statement. And there's the imagery there, by the way, of John's ministry. Prepare the way of the Lord. Crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. It was the image of an advanced team in that day who would precede a king who was coming into a nation. And in order for that king to be able to enter in state in all of his glory and splendor, they would send somebody ahead of him who would make sure that there were no bandits along the roads, no ambushes, no obstacles, no trees across. I mean, it's very undignified when you have a king coming down the road and all of the trumpet and the fanfare and the big processional and everything. You've got to hold it all up so you can cut a tree out of the way or move the brush or get a dead donkey from out of the middle of the road or something undignified like that. Somebody would go ahead of them to prepare and make sure it was all smooth and straight. And it's figurative language that's being used in Isaiah. Figurative language that's being used in John 1 when it says prepare the way of the Lord. It's not a literal way, a physical way. John the Baptist's job was not to put down pavement or prepare a road for Jesus to walk in. It is to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their Messiah. And you know what else is figurative in the passage? The word wilderness. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting that John the Baptist lived in the wilderness and preached in the wilderness and ministered out in the wilderness. But that's not the point of the prophecy. The point of the prophecy in using the term wilderness, it was a description of the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. They were barren. They were dry. They were lifeless. They were uninhabitable, spiritually speaking. The, the religion of the Jews which should have brought people to a knowledge of God and entered them into the joy of knowing God and being in a covenant relationship with Him, it had been so twisted, so distorted, so perverted as to become a 
burden, an onerous list of do's and don'ts and man-made regulations and man-made traditions. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, He says to the religious leaders, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and you travel earth and sea to find a proselyte. And when you do, you make Him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You perverted, twisted, wicked, false teachers and false shepherds. And He just called them on the carpet. Why? God wasn't in the temple. God wasn't in the synagogue. God was nowhere near any of that false religion, that self-righteous, works-based, hypocritical bunch of do's and don'ts and regulations. God was nowhere near any of it. It's a wilderness, a barrenness, and a barren wilderness. And John is one who showed up in the midst of spiritual desert and said, prepare to meet your God because He is coming and He is here And before the glory of the Lord will be revealed, you better prepare yourself to meet your God. Now that quotation from John is designed to do two things. Number one, and with this I close. Number one, it is designed to take the attention of those who are listening off of John and put it onto the Lord where it belongs. I'm just a voice, he said. You need to look past me to what I'm here to do, which is to announce the arrival of one who is much greater than me. You need to look beyond just me as the voice I am the one saying, prepare the way of the Lord because God is coming here and you need to be prepared to meet Him. He was just focusing people's attention off of Himself and onto the Lord where it was meant to be. The second thing that that uh, statement, that quotation from Scripture is designed to do is to call upon them to repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. That means you need to prepare your hearts And as a nation, and as a people, and as those who are here today, you need to be ready to meet your God. Friends, I just love the simplicity of what John the Baptist did. He just focused people's attention on Jesus and called them to repentance to prepare to meet their God. That's exactly what gospel ministry does. That's exactly what evangelism does. That's exactly what you as a believer are called to do, and I am called to do, to take attention off of us in whatever form it comes, to point people to the Savior, and call upon them to get ready to meet their God. Because there's coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, and He has furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Are you ready to meet your God? Are you? Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for the privilege that it is to be called Your children, to be made ready by a work of the Spirit of God to meet our God and our King. We thank You that at any instant we could be in Your presence, either through death or by Your coming to take home Your church. We thank You that You have so graced us and so worked in our hearts as to bring us to faith in Christ. It is such a joy and a privilege to be here. And Lord, we pray that You would give to us the grace to do exactly what John the Baptist did, and that is to eschew any sort of glory for ourselves, to focus attention on Jesus Christ, and to remember that we are to call upon men to be ready to meet Him. For they will either a Savior or judge. We thank You that we fear no condemnation since we are in Christ, but that the expectation and hope of our hearts is that we will meet Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and our sin-bearer in eternal glory. Thank You for that. We worship You in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.